0: For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm
1: Keegan. And I'm Ed. And you're
2: listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood
1: Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal
2: feminist perspectives. I just heard two sneezes from my boyfriend and two scratches at the door from my dog. So Uh (laughs) hopefully, hopefully uh, a dog isn't trying to break in and a boyfriend isn't sneezing the whole time. is
1: isn't sick. Yeah. That'd be bad.
2: I think he's fine. I don't think he's sick. (laughs) All right. Well, everybody, we decided that this week, uh, we would do our personal favorites, which are the feminist faves episodes. um, We, you know, with Keegan's job hopping right now during social distancing and my crazy anxiety, this has been great. Um, Because insider news, I thought we were recording Feminist Faves last week. So, I didn't have to do any research this week for the full-length episode, but I did have to cram in a few hours last week for my Japanese internment camp notes, which I didn't want to do, but I think it turned out pretty well anyways. Um, So, this this was perfectly set up for me this week for doing this. So, um, Keegan, I believe I went first last time. Yes, you did. Would you like to... Yeah, because the last feminist phase we did actually wasn't that long ago, which is why I had to preface it in the beginning. We did um, Malala. Teens. Yeah, we did the teens. Yeah, exactly. So that means that you go first. All right. Awesome. Okay, so for my
1: feminist favorite this week, when I first decided to do this person, I think that I really underestimated them. <laughs> As oh. far as how much this person had actually done, and so I have several pages of notes, and I've also I want to preface this entire thing by saying it is nowhere near complete. And if wow. you have, if if you have an interest to learn more about this person, I implore you to turn to Google, and uh, you will be provided with a lot more information on this I'm- person.
2: I'm gonna open Google right now on my computer, and like follow along with you because I don't even know who you're doing, and I'm already so excited.
1: Well, it's not a forgotten feminist fave, so you definitely know some about this person already. uh, But I am
2: going to be talking today about Eleanor Roosevelt. (gasps) Oh my gosh, you're right. You could write a bot. You would have to write volumes on this woman. She's amazing. Incredible. Like it is so much more. I mean, of course,
1: I knew that she'd done a lot. Of course, she's a feminist icon, like all of those things. But I just didn't realize exactly how much there actually was. Yeah. Uh, So I I started getting in and I was probably like two and a half pages deep. And I was like, oh man, there's so much more. So uh, I definitely will be leaving some things out just in the interest of time. uh, But but yeah, okay. Wow, so. I was
2: that I was just going to say really quick. I remember when I was first introduced to Eleanor Roosevelt was when we had to do a biography report where we had to give a presentation as that person and i did um florence nightingale and i was obsessed mm-hmm. with her at the time so i was dressed as her and my best friend at the time one of them rachel was doing eleanor roosevelt and i were hearing that story and i was so in love with florence nightingale and then i heard that story and i was like you have a better one <laughs> like <laughs> i there. mean it,
1: it's another one of those people i feel like I feel like we talk about this a lot whenever we do feminist favorites where we're just like, how do you have enough time
2: in the day to do all of the things that you have done? You know, or how I do you have the energy, you know? Yeah, it's got to be a drive from within. I said something earlier today right before I took a nap and I don't think anything has ever been more true in my life. I said if I could do everything in the world lying down, I would do everything in the world. <laughs> like yeah, that's the thing if I had the I don't know what it is in them if it's a certain drive or if it's a gene or if it's an energy or what it is that they can just like block out that part of them that like needs sleep and binge watching TV and they're able to just push through and they won't stop until it's done.
1: Yes exactly like I was going to say it's it, for me honestly I feel like I could maybe even though sleeping is one of my favorite things in the whole world <laughs> I feel like I could delay sleep for a certain amount of time. But for me, it's like I need a certain amount of sitting on the couch, reading a book, watching a TV show, taking a bath. I need self-care time. Like, I need it. Mm -hmm. That's time that's just for me to kind of, like, do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is just what these people want. But I feel like Eleanor Roosevelt didn't take any of that time. Like, she maximized all of her time doing shit you know right. <laughs> like, exactly
2: exactly uh, well let's get to yeah. it I'm very excited I'm very I'm really sorry if we're getting any sound from outside I'm gonna do my best to cut it out but for some reason it's sounding louder than usual in here
1: I can't hear it on my end okay uh, good. so you're probably okay okay good. and also I want to address for the listeners we are still trying to figure out the best way to record Uh, The last couple of episodes, we've had some issues. We were recording using Zoom, and we were having some difficulties. So we have tried a different way, and hopefully the sound quality is better for you guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let us know if it's still an issue, uh, and we will try and troubleshoot it.
2: Yeah, I really appreciate people actually writing in to us, saying how much they like our episodes lately. Like We've really been hearing a lot of good responses from people, now more than we ever have before and that made me feel good because i've been kind of hard on myself with sound and editing and really wanting to make sure everything is perfect for you guys and hearing that you guys are supporting us no matter what is super cool so thank you for maybe uh listening through some shitty sound quality to hang out with us i really appreciate it
1: yeah totally agreed All right. So let's jump in talking about our girl Eleanor Roosevelt. So she was born on October 11th, 1884 in Manhattan, New York City. And her first name actually isn't Eleanor. It's Anna. But she preferred Eleanor. And so from an early age, she she insisted on being called Eleanor. Uh, And I think that's so interesting because for me, I mean Eleanor Roosevelt is the Eleanor, right? Like she's like the famous Eleanor, and I associate that name so closely with her. So the fact that her birth name is actually Anna after her mother yeah uh, is is kind of interesting to me, so that's funny.
2: I actually tried to change my name when I was young because I found out that my mom almost my mom and dad almost named me Riley, and I didn't oh I love like, that I didn't like Madigan anymore, so I had a sign on my door that said. I'll come out if you call me Riley. And that was oh about God. a day and then that was done.
1: <laughs> I mean, I actually, I like both names. I think Madigan and Riley are both super, super cute names. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> So her parents were wealthy socialites, Anna Rebecca Hall and Elliot Bullock Roosevelt, and her uncle, her father's brother, would eventually go on to be the US president Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who served 1901 to 1909, and I I don't know why I always assumed that that Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt were the two that were more closely related, and that's actually not true. So, um, Teddy Roosevelt was Eleanor Roosevelt's uncle, and he was something like a fifth cousin to Franklin Delano Roosevelt.
2: Interesting. Uh,
1: Which is not what I thought. I thought that they had the closer familial tie, but it's not the case. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So while her father had his faults, of which I will get into a little bit later on, Eleanor greatly idealized him and went on later to collect his letters and to publish them. And her mother, on the other hand, was known to be a great beauty for her time. She was this debutante socialite, uh, a prominent social figure, and she was somewhat kind of not so low-key ashamed and disappointed by Eleanor's what she thought was Eleanor's plainness that she wasn't pretty enough basically Uh, and that she was also like a pretty introverted personality because Eleanor was her only daughter she ended up having two sons after Eleanor and um, she was disappointed that her
2: daughter wasn't a great beauty and so she she couldn't dress her up and do all that kind of stuff.
1: Right, I mean, and she did. She tried, but I think she was a pretty vain woman. Uh, right. And Eleanor, you know, she's never been known as a great beauty. She had a lot of like wonderful attributes, but that yeah. wasn't what she was known for. And her mom was disappointed in this little girl, yeah, uh, which is really really upsetting. It is, and, yeah. And so she nicknamed her granny, and that's what she would call her. Oh, her daughter, my gosh. Mm -hmm. So needless to say they didn't have the closest of relationships. Probably not. Yeah and her childhood was actually really not a happy one so despite the love that she had for her father um, he was an alcoholic who suffered from narcotic addiction and something that is referred to as nervous sickness which We don't really know what that is. I'm assuming it's some kind of either like psychological or behavioral disorder. And some speculate that whatever it was led to seizures. So they think it might have been epilepsy. They're not sure what this nervous sickness
2: was. Oh, I thought you were trying to diagnose what happened to me on Monday when I got so anxious (laughs) that I ended up throwing up. I was like, oh, my God, did you just fucking diagnose me, Keegan? Thank you. I
1: mean, that was my first instinct was that whatever this nervous sickness thing was, yeah. it had something to do with anxiety or depression. Like, that's kind of what I thought. And very often, anxiety and depression and addiction issues do go hand in hand. Yes. Uh, so it's it's difficult to say. But what we do know is that in either 1890 or 1891, While he was vacationing with his wife and children in France, his family, not his wife and children, but other members of his family, had him committed to a mental institution. And a year later, his brother, Theodore Roosevelt, committed him to the Keeley Center in Dwight, Illinois, in an effort to treat his alcohol addiction. So Mm. he went to a mental institution, and then he also, it sounds like, went to some kind of rehab. Okay. So... Shortly after that, Eleanor's mother, Anna, died suddenly of diphtheria at the age of 29 when Eleanor was just 8 years old. Wait. Eleanor's mother died at 29? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, is yeah, super sad. And then her um, brother, who was four years old, died the following year, and then a year after her brother's death, Eleanor's father's alcoholism had escalated to the point that he was drinking numerous bottles of champagne and brandy a day, which oh, that sounds like a headache. God like, does that not sound like the worst hangover you've ever had. Like champagne and brandy.
2: Oh, oh a champagne hangover. I have to say, champagne drunk is my best drunk. Champagne oh, it's great. hangover is the absolute worst worst and
1: brandy has a lot of sugar in it as well so if you're drinking like multiple bottles of both of those things every day like oh just no thank you um so his alcoholism was super bad and he was in a facility at this point I mean I can imagine he's lost his four year old son to diphtheria and also his 29 year old wife back to back Uh, and he's in this institution he decided to attempt suicide by jumping out of a window Mm. and he survived the initial fall, but then he suffered a seizure three days later and died at the age of 34. No. Yes. So in just two years, Eleanor's family went from five to two, just her and her younger brother Hall, uh, who were sent off to live with her maternal grandmother
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yes. These losses were, of course, like super traumatic for her. She's a child. Yeah. And some speculate, and it would make sense to me, that the reason for the depression that Eleanor battled for her entire life could stem in part to this childhood trauma that she experienced. Of course.
2: Well, because back then, too, there was really no understanding of trauma at all and how it affected early development and things like that. So when she was eight years old to 10 years old, and within two years, lost most of her family and was the eldest as well. She had two younger brothers, you said. Like, that's a lot of responsibility as well even though she's going to the grandparents there has to be something in her as well that feels responsible for her younger brother and that's a lot on a kid too.
1: Absolutely and I don't have a lot of notes on this because like I said I had to cut a lot of stuff down but I right. did read a lot of sources of which you know I I read a very long article which was very in depth on a website that I did not know existed called firstladies.org Ooh. Uh, which I would recommend Um but in in both that article and several others that I read, you're exactly right. So she had two legitimate brothers, Uh uh, one of whom passed away. She also had a half-brother who was illegitimate that her father fathered with another woman. Got it. But with her legitimate brother, Hall, who was younger than her, um, her dad asked her to take care of him, and she took that very seriously, like to the point where... Um, She was very, very protective and maternal to him to the point where even in his later life, whenever he was suffering from alcoholism and stuff himself, he lived on the grounds of the White House. Like they had like a place for him to be. And he asked her permission to get married and like all of that stuff. She really did take like kind of a maternal role with with her younger brother. Right. Which is a lot. It's a lot for like a child to take on. And also in these times, and especially in these families, these, like, you know, very aristocratic American families, I don't think being very, like, warm and affectionate and understanding was the way that people yes. did things. So she probably didn't get enough, like, affection and comfort No, for all these things that happened to her. Um, so she had incredibly low self-esteem, unsurprisingly. I wonder right. why her mom was kind of shitty uh, about that. And so she often referred to herself as an ugly duckling. But at mm. the age of 14, she wrote this in her diary. And I think that this is just this speaks so much to like who she was or who she was going to grow up to be. She said, no matter how plain a woman may be, if truth and loyalty are stamped upon her face, all will be if af- all will be attracted to her.
2: Oh, at 14 I've heard, I've heard that before I feel like that's that such sweet? a beautiful thing to say. I wish I had that kind of insight at 14 years old. I did yes. not. <laughs> I did not
1: either. So she was uh, sent to Allenswood Academy at the age of 15, and it was a private finishing school outside of London, England, where she was educated from 1899 to er, to 1902. And she wanted to remain at the school, but she was forced by her grandmother to come back to America to make her social debut. So for the first time in her life, she felt understood, and she was like, really feeling comfortable in her own skin. And part of that is because the headmistress, Marie Souvestri, was somebody who really, really tried to relate to her and kind of took her under her wing. Mm-hmm. She taught her how to speak French, and they would speak French uh, fluently together. And Suvestri, and this is kind of not really important, but an interesting little side note, given the speculation around Eleanor's sexuality, yeah. Suvestri was described as a lesbian and she had several fairly open relationships with other women, one of which was a teacher at Allenwood. um, And that, that teacher became her longtime partner in her later life. So she had like two very serious, pretty public relationships with women. uh, One of which was a teacher at Allenwood at the same time that Eleanor was there. So it was kind of this woman who was like, uh, I'm going to she ran a finishing school, but she was also like, I'm going to live my life the way that I see fit to live my life.
2: Right. Wasn't there um, speculation? I know you're probably going to get into this later. So if so, stop me now. But wasn't there speculation that Eleanor also had like a really close friend that was a woman that was kind of with her till the yes till she died?
1: Yes. So I'll talk a little bit about some of the speculation around her sexuality and relationships. Uh, I'll touch on it. I won't get into depth just because there's so much to cover. But yeah, I mean, there was for several factors that we'll talk about. There was speculation around what her sexuality was like, as we talked about when I talked about Polly Murray, uh, you know, um, when I did the feminist favorite for Polly Murray, who was a good friend of Eleanor Roosevelt. Um. In 1902, she came back to the United States to have her coming out party at the age of 17, and she really did not enjoy it. She wrote about what it felt like for her. She's introverted And just this wasn't the kind of life that she wanted. But soon after, she became active in the junior league and started teaching dancing and calisthenics. And she joined the group in part because she overheard a male relative criticizing it for, quote, drawing young women into public activity. And I love that. (laughs) She was just like, oh, really? Is that a problem for you? I'm going to go join the junior league. I love it. The Junior League was a circle of other elite class women like herself who were interested in reform efforts to improve the lives of the impoverished masses that existed within um, really deplorable working conditions. So they would create what they called settlement houses, which was a community center, kind of, that would help improve the lives of workers. So they offered classes. And Eleanor, you know, she... Was from a, a higher aristocratic class, so she didn't know how to do a lot of practical things, but she's like, I can offer you dance and calisthenics so, like, when you're done working in these factories, you can work your body, like, stretch your bodies out and kind of, like, get relaxed for the day. That's kind of how she... She's like, she's like I like, can this help. This is what I have to offer. Yeah, yeah exactly. I yeah, Uh, But a lot of these people were from an immigrant population and she was teaching them useful. They were teaching them useful skills and lessons for their own well-being. It was kind of like self-care in a way. And and this is kind of where she dips her toe into like the social justice pool. She was very motivated by the political actions of her uncle, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who if we look back on now, we think like, oh, a lot of the things he was trying to implement were these almost socialist ideas um, yeah. that that he had for for communities and so she exactly. looked at that and kind of wanted to emulate that mm-hmm. so she also became an investigator for the Consumers League which was a reform organization that was created to socially uh, created by socially prominent women to support milliners and others who work in harsh factory conditions so milliners are people who make hats <laughs> that's yeah. that's a milliner mm-hmm. uh and I read that like one of her first assignments was to go into one of these milliner factories where the it was a sweatshop essentially and the conditions were so bad. These women were in there making like artificial flowers all day long. Oh my um, gosh. And it was like really dangerous and unhealthy. So she would also uh, not only visit the workers at work but also visit them in their overcrowded and unsanitary tenement apartments. And she would make notes about their workload and physical toll on the workers and the sanitary and safety conditions of the rooms in which they lived and worked. She also helped to create and uh, disseminate publicity in the form of open letters to newspapers, press releases, and other forms of media exposure. And they created this thing at the Consumers League that was called the White Label, and it was an endorsement that was given to manufacturers who adhered to a certain labor standard. So... Anyone who didn't have, like, the white label, you were like, oh, they run a sweatshop. Mm. Like, these are approved by us because we went in and checked their conditions and things are good here. Uh, And this is kind of, you know, so she's dipped her toe into social justice and now she's dipping her toe into publicity, which you'll see that she uses a lot. She uses the media a lot, especially after she becomes first lady. Yeah. Yeah. So in the summer of 1902, so that same year, she's still only 17. She's done all this. Uh, and she encounters Franklin Roosevelt on a train in New York. So kind of by happenstance. And this is her fifth cousin. Again, I feel like I was fed information that, that Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt were like first cousins. Right. Right. <laughs> But they're not. They're fifth cousins. It's like their great, great, great grandparents were siblings. Right. So it's like the amount that they're related is really negligible. They just have the same last name. Right. Um, so they they took to each other kind of instantly, and they started this secret courtship and then an engagement. And Mama Roosevelt, Franklin Delano's mom, was not Having it, she was super opposed to the marriage. She begged her son not to marry Eleanor, and she asked him even to wait a year before announcing the engagement. I think in hoping that she could break them up. She sent him uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt to uh, the Caribbean on a cruise in hopes that he would forget about Eleanor. He like sent her away. Oh my gosh! She's the worst. We'll talk about her. She fucking sucks. Oh god. Um, but, but he didn't forget about her. He wrote a letter to his mom, and he's like, I know this is causing you distress, but I want to marry Eleanor. That's what it is, and that's mm-hmm. what I'm going to do. So oh. the two were married on March 17th, 1905.
2: Like, it's kind of gross, but...
1: <laughs> I mean, but not really, because it's like... It's so you distant. You could be related to somebody... Like, yeah, you could be related to somebody who's technically your fifth cousin that you and you wouldn't even know. Do you know what I mean because right, but the, the only that reason that we know knew, about this
2: but the fact yeah. that they knew there's something to me. Oh, I'm not judging at all at different times, different whatever, but there's something to me. It's when I, it's the same thing as when I watch Clueless and the step-siblings get together. I don't care that they're not related. There's something weird to me about it and I don't like it. To me, honestly, I think that situation is weirder because oh, yeah. they grew
1: up together. So uh-huh. to me like that's weirder. Where like this is to me the only thing that makes this weird. And the only reason why anyone even comments on it is because they have the same last name.
2: Exactly. Because
1: I think um, somebody said like Kira Sedgwick and Kevin Bacon, they're like fifth cousins as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. No one talks as much about it. And I think it's because their last names are different. And in this case, it's weird because she went from Eleanor Roosevelt to Eleanor Roosevelt, like after she got married, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I totally get that in in that way, but um, also you have to acknowledge that at this time it was kind of common for first cousins to get married. So right, exactly
2: that's why I was like different time. But yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Sarah Roosevelt, who is Franklin Delano's uh, Delano's mother, seems like the mother-in-law from hell. She seems fucking awful (laughs) she interjected into every part of their lives oh god to the point where they got married against her wishes they went off for their honeymoon they got back and sarah was like hey bought you guys a house and you're like oh thanks that seems so nice but what she did was she bought them a townhouse next door to her townhouse Mm. so they're connected they're literally connected and then she went in and had contractors put doors in Inside to connect the two, no, pro- like yes, yeah, so she could just come in, no, like to their house at any time. No, it was no, no, fucking awful. She was super imposing and demanding, and she ran both households despite anything. Eleanor wanted so early on Eleanor had a breakdown in which she explained to Franklin that quote I did not like to live in a house which was not mine which was not in any way mine one that I had done nothing about which did not represent the way I wanted to live yeah she went so far as to control the way that they were raising the children Mm -hmm. and um, well that's pretty
2: common with the mother-in-law I gotta say (laughs) or just mothers in general (laughs)
1: It is, but I feel like if you have any amount of, like... And I, I feel like that might be an impulse that you want to do, that, but I feel like most people would try right. and They can rain that. it in. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, and she actually said later on, Eleanor said, Franklin's children were more my mother-in-law's children than they were mine. Oh, no. and, and her eldest son, James, later went on to say that his grandmother, Sarah, told all the grandchildren, your mother only bore you. I am more your mother than your
2: mother is.
1: Oh,
0: no.
2: Horrible. Like, just horrible. Those so there poor were, children to hear that. Like, that's those so kids sad. And,
1: and poor Eleanor, because people talk about how, like, she didn't have a lot of motherly instincts, but it's also, like, she wasn't really given much of a chance no. to be a mother. You she know? wanted to be, it sounds
2: like. Like, yeah. she was like, this is not what I wanted my home to be. I would assume that that involves... You know, raising your children as well. And I think she wanted to raise them a particular
1: way. Like she was pretty progressive. Right. Uh, and you have somebody kind of stifling
2: that within your own home. Exactly. That would drive me insane.
1: Oh, I w- I don't know if I could tolerate. It. I'd be like, Franklin, handle your fucking mom. You <laughs> like this is your job. Handle your mom. Franklin. Uh, <laughs> what the hell? So there were lots of rumors about Eleanor's sexuality, and I think it kind of sprang out of this initially, uh, and that is that she later went on to even say that she really didn't enjoy sex, uh, particularly she didn't enjoy sex with her husband, <laughs> and she told her daughter Anna uh, that sex was, quote, an ordeal to be born. She's like, you just have to get get it over with. Yeah. Like That's oh how she God. felt about sex. Uh, well, she sounds and pretty in,
2: asexual right now.
1: At this point, yes. That's that's how I feel as well. Um, but in 1918, Eleanor discovered that her husband was having an affair with a friend of hers, Lucy Mercer, and was considering leaving Eleanor. He was dissuaded by his political advisors and his mother, his mom, who hates Eleanor, but she was like, we can't have a divorce in this family. So she threatened to disinherit FDR if he were to leave Eleanor and so he stayed but at that point Eleanor became pretty disillusioned with the idea of romantic marriage and so it became more of a political partnership which is what we'll see throughout his presidency and the rest of their relationship right so when Franklin was diagnosed with a paralytic illness, which at the time was believed to be polio, but now they think it was something slightly different. It was Eleanor's nursing that likely saved his life. When Mm -hmm. it became clear that he would permanently lose the use of his legs, um, Sarah, his mom tried to force him to leave politics. And it was actually Eleanor who persuaded her husband to stay in politics. Uh, And it was partially her persuasion and also that she managed to stand in for him uh, when he was incapacitated, making all public appearances on his behalf. Which, which is pretty which kind crazy.
2: Of, yeah. Because you yeah. think that like a vice president would do that. But it's pretty amazing that the first lady would, would do that. Uh
1: Well, she wasn't first lady yet. He wasn't president oh, yet. Oh, sorry. But, yes, that's true. But he was still running for political offices. Right. Uh, and so she would attend events on his behalf that's and amazing. make speeches on his behalf, which is a crazy in like the very, very early 1920s. Yeah. Uh, and it was because of this, you know, she kind of won over. It seems pretty clear to me that FDR at this point wasn't super romantically in love with with Eleanor, but they were partners. Well, and I'm like sure they hate. were
2: very fond of each other, too. You know, there's a yes. difference between being, you know, loving somebody and being in love, romantic love with them, and maybe they fell out of romantic love but still had a love for each other where they could work together,
1: you know? Right, and I think he saw what she
2: was doing for him, and even
1: his doctor was like... Hey, not every wife would do this. She's like v- extremely. You should really commend your wife for doing these things. That's pretty amazing uh, for the
2: nineteen twenties.
1: Yes, yeah, and it, so I think it was this that actually turned the tides as far as like um Eleanor and Sarah went, where she started taking back control and Franklin. Well, Franklin got on his wife's side for kind of like the first time in their marriage. Fucking was like, finally, Franklin. You know what? Yeah, he's like, I trust Eleanor, actually. Uh, I'm going to listen to her ideas. And she started presenting ideas to him for social change. And he was like, I trust you. I think you have good judgment. Let's move forward. I love it so, so much. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a great, you know, it's not necessarily the most ideal marriage in every way. But in this way, I think it's, it's really great. Well, it seems like, OK, at this time, how old are their kids? I mean, I think their kids are still young. So they got married in 19...
2: Well, they got married in 1905, so their kids could be teenagers at this point. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, they're kind of past that point of, like, raising babies and children together. And, you know, I've seen how my parents' marriage has changed over the years and disintegrated but anyways um, (laughs) it's interesting how like you're it adapts yes exactly there's there's a different kind of relationship when you're not actively raising a child together or having to interact with each other in a husbandly and wifely way you know maybe they just had an agreement together but what i think is really fantastic is that a political man was able to listen to his wife and Acknowledge that she had good ideas and used them and that we are giving her credit for them. You know what I mean? Like she's been right. getting credit for them because I feel like throughout history, especially with politics and our government, there's so many things that women have done that have been under the name of somebody else or... Or completely dismissed. So the fact that he was able to really listen to her, I think that shows a different level of like love and understanding. That's maybe different from a husband, but definitely. Right. The utmost respect, I think. Yeah.
1: And yeah, he respects her as a partner. Yeah. Like, and as somebody who can like, and in a lot of ways, when I was doing this research, what kept coming back to me was FDR wouldn't be FDR without Eleanor. There's no way, in my opinion. I think she was actually the stronger force. And Mm -hmm. if they had existed in another time, she would have been president because she
2: was. Well, it's pretty funny that you say that because I think there's a lot of parallels to the Clintons in a way. Mm -hmm. Of how, you know, everybody said, you know, President Clinton and his and her husband, Bill, you know, there was that joke. And like I've been seeing some parallels in that, which is funny why you say, well, she would have been president. And I was like, well, Hillary wasn't. But then again, Hillary, I think, was very different. A very different person. Well, yeah, Eleanor Eleanor was
1: beloved in a lot of ways that I feel
2: like Hillary isn't. Yeah. Um, But
1: I think she's far more politically minded than than FDR was. I yeah. think she has better instincts, you know. So yeah, so she's deciding that she's going to start dipping her toe into politics herself and advocating for some social change. So she started working with the Women's Trade Union League, raising funds to support uh, the union's goals, which was a 48 hour work week, minimum wage and the abolition of child labor. She's like, guys, yeah. can we please? <laughs> which I think now is kind of funny because we do 40 hour work weeks and she's like, can we a 48 hour work week? No more than that. Stop yeah. working people to death. Um And throughout the 1920s, she became increasingly influential as a leader in New York in the Democratic Party, while Franklin used his contacts among, used her contacts, I'm sorry, among Democratic women to strengthen his standing with them. Uh, And it's a lot of what allowed him to win his presidency. Wow. So again, it's like her contacts, her ability to lead. Uh, is part of what got him the presidency. Yeah. So in in 1924, she campaigned for Democrat Alfred E. Smith in a successful re-election campaign um, for governor of New York State against the Republican no- nominee, which was her first cousin Theodore Roosevelt the Third. Wow. So Theodore Roosevelt, the president's son, um, and. So she went against her family because she's just like, no, my ideals lie within the Democratic Party. I won't support you, even though you're my first cousin. So, yeah, she um, campaigned against her own first cousin, which her family, they never forgave her for. Well, they did eventually, but her cousin Theodore Roosevelt III never forgave her and her aunt uh, publicly disowned her and broke with her after this. Those oh, two did actually, I know, those two did actually end up reconciling at some point, uh, but she she kind of like went to war with them and you can read the things that she says and it's kind of snippy. Uh, it's like in all of the tabloids where they're like shots fired like back and forth at each mm-hmm. other. And she says later, she was like, it was beneath me to have engaged with them in that way. But I kind of like it because it's like, she's human. And she was just like, they're not going to talk about me like this. Like, no, I think that what they stand for is bullshit. And I'm going to say that. In 1927, she established Valkill Industries, where she and several business partners financed the construction of a small factory to provide supplemental income for local farming families who would make furniture, pewter, homespun cloth and use traditional craft methods. So she promoted Valkill through interviews and public appearances and Valkill industries never really became a the subsistence program that she wanted, uh, but she still believed it to be a success uh, because she saw the improvement in the way that people were living at that time. So mm-hmm. And she kept the property because she really loved it and actually ended up retiring onto that property after Franklin died. So she became the first lady of the United States when Franklin was inaugurated on March 4th, 1933. And she knew kind of the way that all 20th century first ladies were expected to behave, uh, which was they were traditionally restricted to domesticity and like hostessing. So they were like, oh, you can have parties and stuff like that, but you have to kind of give up any other political aspirations or affiliations that you may be tied to. Mm-hmm. Um, so she wanted to redefine the position, and she became, quote, the most controversial first lady in United States history at this point. Yeah, she was. She she received criticism from both parties, both the Republican and the Democratic Party, uh, were were critical of her wanting to have any kind of aspirations. But her husband, again, strongly supported her. And he wanted her to continue to be active in business and to keep up a speaking agenda. And and so she did that. She was the first presidential spouse to hold regular press conferences. And in 1940 became the first to speak at a national party convention. She also wrote daily in a syndicated newspaper column called My Day, uh, another first for a presidential spouse. Mm-hmm. And she was the first lady, the first first lady to write a monthly magazine column and to host a radio show. So she was busy that's in awesome. In the first year, yeah. And in the first year of her husband's administration, she was determined to match his presidential salary. So she earned $75,000 the first year uh, of his pr- his presidency just from her lectures, writing, um, and like public appearances. Wow. Uh, most of which she ended up giving to charity. But I just love that idea where she was like, you might be president of the United States, but I'm going to match you on income.
2: I love you that. Know?
1: Yeah, me too. Oh, my God. So she maintained a really heavy travel schedule during her 12 years in the White House, because as we know, FDR was in the White House longer than anyone else. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she would frequently make personal appearances at labor meetings. So she would during the Depression, uh, she would go to these workers personally, the first lady, uh, and talk to them about their situation. Wow. And it made them feel heard. They loved her. So her chief project during her husband's first two terms was the establishment of the community. There was a community in Arthurdale, West Virginia. So a friend of hers, who I'll talk about a little bit later, who there was some rumor that there may have been like a romantic connection there, Mm -hmm. had urged her to visit the families of homeless miners in Morganville, West Virginia, who had been blacklisted because they had wanted to be involved in unions. And so she went and visited them and she was deeply affected by it. And so she proposed a resettlement community for the miners uh, where they could, again, it was another subsistence farming handcrafts Mm -hmm. kind of like community. And she hoped that it would be a model for a new kind of community in the United States. And and Franklin enthusiastically supported her project. That's fantastic. And I, yes, and I again, all of these things they're very socialist ideas. Yeah, the things that she was trying to implement. And though she had hoped for a racially mixed community, the miners insisted on limiting membership to white Christians. And after losing a community vote, Eleanor recommended that they create another community uh, for black and Jewish minors. Uh, and this experience really did kind of motivate her to become more outspoken about racial discrimination and civil rights issues. Oh. Yes, because she was just like, I think this is this is bullshit. Yeah, but her commu- this community that she created did not receive a lot of support at all from either party. Mm -hmm. Um, People on the right thought it was communist. Uh, People on the left opposed the competition with private enterprises. And so a lot of people really consider this to be a failure. However, the residents of this community, because of the life that they were going, they, they were living before they entered into these communities, they considered this town to be like a utopia. Yeah. For them. And it allowed them to return to society with economic stability. Mm-hmm. And so she considered the project to be a success and later went on and said, I don't know whether you think that is worth half a million dollars, but I do, when she was saying, talking about the improvement to people's lives that she saw uh, afterwards. And it's like, yes, it costs a lot of money, but look how much better all of these people are doing, and that's worth it to me. Of course.
2: And that's what our political leaders should be thinking.
1: Yes, exactly. So during Franklin's administration, Eleanor became uh, an important connection to the African-American community during segregation. And despite... So Franklin really was in this position where he felt like he needed to placate the South uh, and he didn't want to do anything to rock the boat too much Mm -hmm. and, you know, make them dislike him. But Eleanor, of course, did her own shit and was just like, no, no, uh, this shit is not okay. And after her experience at Arthurdale, she... concluded that a lot of these programs, including the New Deal, which was a big thing that FDR had done, were discriminating against African-Americans who received disproportionately small shares of relief money. And so she became one of the only voices in her husband's administration that was insisting on benefits um, for Americans of all races and Mm -hmm. that they be equally distributed benefits. She also broke with tradition by inviting hundreds of African-American guests to the White House. And in 1936, she became aware of the conditions at a national training school for girls that was a predominantly black reform school. And so she visited it and then she wrote about the conditions in her My Day column and lobbied for funding and pressed charges in staffing and curriculum. Wow. And pressed for, sorry, pressed for changes, not pressed charges. I was like,
2: damn, she
1: went hard on this school. Super hard. No, she pressed for changes. Um, But... It, it, these things became an issue for her husband, so he was very supportive of her, but these these things did become an issue for her husband uh, during his re-election campaigns. A lot of people in the South, white people, racist people in the South, did not like that she was so gung-ho about civil rights issues. Right. She lobbied behind the scenes for the 1934 Costigan uh, Wagner bill to make lynching a federal crime, and included. A, she arranged a meeting between her husband and the NAACP president Walter Francis White, who we talked about in the uh, Tulsa race massacre.
2: Episode. Yes.
1: So he feared that he would lose, Franklin feared that he would lose too many votes in Southern congressional delegates. And so he would not publicly support the bill. Uh, and so it didn't pass the Senate, unfortunately. Mm. In 1942, Roosevelt worked or Roosevelt Eleanor worked with activist Polly Murray, as we discussed, Mm -hmm. uh, to persuade Franklin to appeal on behalf of Odell Waller. And if you want to know more about that, listen to the Polly Shore, uh, Polly Shore. Wow. Polly Murray uh, episode.
2: Let's do a Polly
1: Shore episode, Keegan. Whoa. (laughs) That's a really forgotten Uh, feminist fave. (laughs) <laughs> and she actually was able to convince Franklin to write a letter to the governor of Virginia at the time asking for him to commute the sentence. Unfortunately, it didn't work uh, and Waller was executed, but they tried mm-hmm. the following uh, following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which we just talked about mm-hmm. our internment camp episode. um, she spoke out against Japanese American prejudice. She She warned against quote great hysteria against minority groups. And she also privately uh, opposed and later did, talk about the ways in which she opposed her husband's executive order 9066, which required Japanese Americans to go into the internment camps. Uh, She was widely criticized for her defense of Japanese American citizens. And the Los Angeles Times actually said uh, that she should be, quote, forced to retire from public life over her stand uh, in favor of Japanese Americans at that time. You should be faced
2: what was it faced to
1: forced to retire from public life
2: retire from your public life that's what we're doing right now we're all retired from our
1: public lives (laughs) they're like please stop talking stop talking you're a lady who won't stop talking um she also uh, supported increased roles for women and African Americans in the war effort, and began to advocate for women to be given factory jobs a year before that became widespread practice. So before Rosie the Riveter, she's uh-uh. like, "Y'all need to get out there." She urged women of all social backgrounds to learn trades, and she said, "Quote: If I were of a debutante age, I would go into a factory, any factory where I could learn a skill and be useful." So she was like, "I don't care. I was born of an upper class." I don't care if you were born of an upper class. Your country needs you, and this is more useful than going to a debutante ball, you know? Um, So she also learned about the high rate of absenteeism among working mothers, and so she campaigned for government-sponsored daycare. She supported the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, which was a largely black combat pilot group um, in World War II. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she, I mean... I just think that this is amazing. Basically, every facet that she could be involved in, she was involved in. Right. I will say very quickly that there are some letters that were revealed early, early on in her life, um, probably when she was a teenager in her late late teens, probably, that were not so favorable uh, in regards to Jewish Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so there has been some talk that she was anti-Semitic. And uh, those things, she did say them, she did say them, but it does appear as though later on in her life, her feelings changed, um, and she did grow, uh, and, and change. But I did want to mention that really quickly because I don't want it to seem like I'm leaving that stuff out on purpose. Of course. So Franklin died on April 12th, 1945, after suffering a cerebral hemorrhage. And she was actually very hurt by this, not by his death, but she was hurt, um, she wasn 't hurt his, by his death. Well, no, she was Oh okay. like, she was Jesus <laughs> She was hurt that his mistress, Lucy Mercer, who she thought was no longer his mistress, was by his side when he died. <gasps> and she wasn't.
2: Oh so this caused, shit.
1: this caused a rift between her and her daughter because her daughter knew and didn't tell her mother that like this um, affair had was still going on.
0: Ooh.
1: This is like Mm -hmm. some big
2: little lie stuff.
1: I know. Uh, So later in that year of 1945, uh, in December, President Harry S. Truman appointed Eleanor as a delegate to the United Nations General Assembly. And in April 1946, she became the first chairperson of the preliminary United Nations Commission on Human Rights. And she remained a chairperson when the commission was established on a permanent basis in January of 1947. She also served as the first United Nations representative, uh, United States representative to the United Nations Commission on Human Rights and stayed in that position till 1953. The U.N. UN posthumously awarded her one of its first human rights prizes in 1968 in recognition of her work. Wow. So throughout... um, the 50s, she embarked on countless national and international speaking engagements. She continued to pen her newspaper column. She made appearances on TV and radio, and she averaged uh, 150 lectures a year throughout the 1950s, uh, many devoted to her activism on behalf of the UN. She received the first annual Franklin Delano Roosevelt Brotherhood Award in 1946. Well, I would hope so. And Yes. And um, I'm just going to list off a bunch of other things that she received in her lifetime. Do it. The Award of Merit of the New York City Federation of Women's Clubs, the Four Freedoms Award, the Irving Geist Foundation Award, and the Prince Carl Medal from Sweden. She um, was also the most admired living woman, according to Gallup's Admired Man and Women poll, of Americans. 13 times between
2: 1948 and 1961. Wow. That's like Brad Pitt winning People's, People Magazine, Sexiest, Sexiest Man, Man Alive so many times. Yeah. That's, she's the equivalent yes. of that.
1: Yes. <laughs> so in April, she's, she's the equivalent of the Sexiest Man Alive. She is. In In April 1960, she was diagnosed with aplastic anemia uh, soon after being struck by a car in New York City. Mm. And in 1962, she was given steroids, which unfortunately activated a dormant case of tuberculosis in her bone marrow. And so she died, resulting in cardiac failure at um, her home in Manhattan at the age of 78 on November 7th, 1962. Um, We keep bringing up
2: tuberculosis.
1: I know. I'm like, again. And it's no good. Yeah. President John F. Kennedy ordered all United States flags lowered to half-mast throughout the world on November 8th in her honor. Well. Uh, yes. So that's that's kind of her life. I did just want to briefly touch on, and let me just pull it up really quickly. So in the 1930s, so there's been a lot of speculation about her sexuality uh, of course, which we've mentioned a few times. And there are a few things uh, that people kind of just dog-eared about her life. In the 1930s, she had a very close relationship with Amelia Earhart. Uh, and there has been some speculation as to Amelia Earhart's sexuality as well, mm-hmm. though we don't know um one way or the other. Right. But she, most notable is that she had a very close relationship with a associated press reporter named Lorena Hickok who covered her during the last months of the presidential campaign and, quote, fell madly in love with her. So during this period, Roosevelt, uh, Eleanor, would write 10 to 15 page letters to Hickok, who she called Hick, um, who was planning to write a biography on her. Mm-hmm. And the letters included things like, quote, I want to put my arms around you and kiss you at the corner of your mouth and I can't kiss you, so I kiss your picture, good night and good morning. Uh so and and whenever President Roosevelt was being inaugurated, she actually uh Eleanor wore a sapphire ring on her hand that Hickok had given her.
2: Oh and
1: Yes. So a lot of people speculate that there may have been a sexual relationship there. Or maybe uh, there some just dis- emotional, romantic r- very relationship. Very emotional, close tie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um, so there are people, historians on both sides, who will argue both ways right. some will say like those things that she wrote were kind of like out of context or like the times were different and that's kind of the way that women s- spoke to each other it wasn't necessarily a sexual thing right uh, and then there are other people who will say no you know Hickok was um known to be a lesbian and have relationships with women so right. it would follow that this was one of those so it's unclear it's unclear but I wanted to just bring it up yep it's one you of know. those things
2: doesn't matter either way but it's kind of fascinating to speculate.
1: Yes, and I'm sorry that was so long. I tried to go fast. It's but okay, it was just a lot.
2: It's all good. Don't you even worry about it. All right, well, I will get right into mine then. So mine is also not so forgotten, but she is kind of an unexpected feminist favorite because she's not known for being a feminist. I am going to talk about Miss Audrey Hepburn.
1: Oh, yay. Awesome. So
2: I'm sure many of you on Instagram or Facebook or any sort of social media, there's always these historical photos that show up and they'll say like a little blip beneath them. And sometimes they're kind of hoax photos and sometimes they're real. Um, But there's there's a photo of her as an old woman that always talks about her uh, activity with UNICEF. And I just kind of remembered that one day. When we had talked about doing feminist favorites, and I didn't know much about her activism during her life. I just know her as being sophisticated and beautiful, playing Holly Go Lightly and Breakfast at Tiffany's. My favorite movie that she did was um, My Fair Lady, and I think the other one was Funny Faces. There's a scene where she's wearing like an all black jumpsuit and dancing. That's like my favorite. Funny thing. Face. Funny Face. Yes. Yeah. Oh, funny I Face. I haven't seen that movie I in I love ages. Roman.
1: I love Roman Holiday. I've never seen Roman Holiday. If you've never seen it, I think it's the first movie she was in, so she's very, very young. It is. So uh, but it's great.
2: I touch So I touch very little on her acting career because that's something that's very well known, but it does tie into her personal life. So I do mention Roman Holiday and things like that. So let's get started. So on May 4th, 1929, Etta Van Heemstra Hepburn Rustin was born near Brussels in Belgium, and she was known as, and I'm sorry for butchering this name, Adriance. Um, I know someone, Aunt Jay, and I always say her name wrong, and I'm really self-conscious, so I don't say her name when I speak to her, and it's really awkward. Um, so her father was an English baker, I almost said baker. Her father was an English banker, and her mother, Ella, was a Dutch baroness. She spent her childhood traveling between Brussels, Arnhem, the Hague. I'm sorry. What? He's a baker, and she's a baroness? Banker, like a money bank.
1: <laughs> oh okay but still but also still <laughs> like she's a baroness
2: he's a banker i get, well i'm just saying he married up he did yeah <laughs> i mean there's he's he's an interesting he's an interesting guy is it pronounced is it pronounced the hague or the hog the hog right hey. the Hague. okay i think so yeah She spent her childhood traveling between Brussels, Arnhem, The Hague, and London. Because of her travels, she learned Dutch, English, French, Spanish, and Italian. She wasn't fluent in all of these, but because of all of her travels, she was able to speak in all of those languages at least a little bit. In the mid-1930s, her parents recruited and collected donations for the British Union of Fascists, And as her father got more involved in the union, he started to abandon his family more and more and eventually completely left his family when she was age six. And this would really deeply affect her for the rest of her life. She was later uh, quoted to say that that was the most traumatic event of her life. Um, She felt very, very abandoned by her father. It's a really tough
1: age like to lose your parent. I always thought, you know, and... This may have been like just callous of me just because I didn't understand. But my mom, my grandparents divorced when my mom was five Mm -hmm. and my mom still talks about it like a lot. And I think it's because it was such a difficult age for your father to leave the family, you know, to have that
2: kind of disruption. When you're in your formative years, it's so... Hard. I mean, in the long run, I think it's probably better for parents to be apart if they shouldn't be together. But I think that it is something that is it does take a toll on on kids, depending on how the divorce and everything is handled. And with him, he just up and left. Um, So after he left, Ella and little, I'm going to say her name wrong again. Adriante moved to Kent, England, where she was known as Audrey Rustin or Little Audrey. So now I can say her name (laughs) without hesitation (laughs) so after britain declared war on germany in september of 1939 audrey and her mother returned to the netherlands where they thought they would be safer from the nazis as the netherlands remained neutral during world war one audrey began taking ballet at the arnhem conservatory in 1939 and she was the instructor's star pupil The Germans invaded the Netherlands in 1940 and Audrey began going by Etta van Heemstra because Audrey was too English-sounding and could be dangerous during German occupation. In 1942, her uncle Otto was actually executed in retaliation for an act of sabotage by the resistance movement. Even though he wasn't actually involved in the act, he was targeted because of his family's prominence in Dutch society. Um, So her father was a fascist her father was a fascist yes and i believe so was he pro
1: germany during this period i mean well i guess we don't know because he left That's i mean i would assume that
2: didn't come up in any of the reading that i did i have no idea um but her mother was dutch so that's why they went back there so yeah i wonder if there was a lot of difference in opinion um in what was happening in the world at that time Um, Her half-brother Ian was deported to work in a German labor camp in Berlin, and her other half-brother went into hiding so that he wouldn't be um, deported as well. So after her uncle's death, Audrey and Ella, her mother, went to move in with Ella's father in VELP. And while they were in VELP, Audrey was recruited by Dr. Hendricks Hoft. He was a prominent name in the resistance in the Netherlands and he did these things called Zwarte Avedens which means black evenings because the windows would be closed and inside they would hold these like private concerts and since Audrey was such a great ballerina Um, she and her mother had actually attended one of these secret concerts and he kind of recruited Audrey to dance while other people played music and things like that. And this was also a way for uh, one for artists to make money during this time because when the Nazis came, it was all about their artwork. Uh, Other artists were not allowed to like Native People from the Netherlands were not really allowed to sell their artwork anymore. So it was a way for everybody to express themselves. But also it was a way to raise money for the resistance as well and help allied forces, which is really amazing. So these evenings became so popular that they were able to raise enough money for tens of thousands of Jews and others hiding in the Netherlands. The first documented involvement of the Van Heemster family was on April twenty third, 1944. So Audrey began doing all of these shows, and though she was able to perform during this time, her body really uh, took a toll from all of the malnutrition. Um, And later in life, when she was asked about her involvement in these events, Audrey said, "'I was quite able to perform, and it was some way in which I could make some kind of contribution.'" I did indeed give various underground concerts to raise money for the Dutch resistance movement. I danced at recitals, designing my dances myself. I had a friend who played piano and my mother made my costumes." They were very amateurish attempts, but nevertheless, at the time when there was very little entertainment, it amused people and gave them an opportunity to get together and spend a pleasant afternoon listening to music and seeing my humble attempts. The recitals were given in houses with windows and doors closed, and no one knew they were going on. Afterwards, the money was collected and given to the Dutch underground." Um, but I really like how she describes all of that she very much minimizes her involvement in things a lot Uh, I don't think I think because she was so young and she was just this dancer that she probably doesn't want you know there were other people involved that she probably wants to put the spotlight on she's like these were just these amateur attempts of me trying to give people a good time that's all it was
1: well and I think that maybe when you're in it it like we can look back on it now and and think like oh wow like how brave that you lived through these times and you did these things but probably at the time it didn't feel that way so it would be difficult to talk about it as though you were doing something extraordinary exactly you know
2: well I don't think anybody who does something heroic at the time is like this is going to make me a hero you just do what you're living your life and you do what you're inclined to do and then it's later that you're looked at as this hero Um, So her mother did end up hosting a couple of of events as well. So they were very involved. It's not like this was just a fleeting thing. They really uh, grew a relationship with the Dutch underground. And Audrey actually says of this time that the best audiences I ever had made not a single sound at the end of my performance, which I think is beautiful because she went on to have such a beautiful acting career that she holds on to those memories of the of her teen years of those just silent moments and I'm sure Keegan you've had those moments as a performer as well when there's no applause it's just silent and you just kind of sit with it for a second it shows the appreciation she has for the art that she's doing and I really love what she has to say right yeah and the audience as exactly well. it's phenomenal so living and performing in Velp at this time was especially dangerous because the Nazi ruler of the Netherlands Arthur Seyss-Inquart and his henchman Hans Albin had their secret base at the Park Hotel in Velp. So in her town the Nazi base was chilling. Uh, The horrors. Yeah, they were just chilling in the horrors right there. And they really were everywhere. Uh, Once Audrey was walking downtown with her mother and as they passed a bank, they heard horrible sounds coming from inside. And Audrey says, it was enlightened to me by my mother that it was a prison and perhaps people were being tortured. These are things you don't forget. It's pretty wild. Horrifying. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And I, I remember hearing and I know you touched on it just now, but like. Also, they weren't they weren't eating very no. much like it was like it, it was a very difficult time. It's yes. Not, and she had I think we can rom- she yeah. had issues. I think we can romanticize like I think we can romanticize like, oh, they were artists and there was this underground artist colony. And it can take away from a lot of the very real horrors that right. she was actually Exposed to every day. Yeah, the
2: lack of food, the fear. I mean, the Nazi headquarters was in her hometown. This was something that was very prominent in her upbringing and in her hometown. Um, so in a 1951 interview, and I got a lot of my next notes from an amazing Time Magazine article. She gave a 1951 interview and said that her role in the resistance was, quote, running around with food for pilots. So what that is in reference to were the Allied airmen shot down by the Nazis in the, Neverland, in the Netherlands. I said Netherlands like Peter Pan. <laughs> That's what I used to think it was when I was oh, a everybody kid. Everybody did, I think. Um, the resistance helped keep them safe while they recovered and helped them escape without being caught by the Nazis. And once Dr. Hooft sent Aud- I'm going to say hoofed, but I don't know. It's H O O F T. Dr. Hooft sent Audrey to deliver a message and some food to the pilots. And she was chosen for the job because she was fluent in English and she was also a young girl. So she was okay. Before I start the story, there's a lot of different versions of the story. And I'm going to summarize it with specific words that Audrey herself has said at the very end. But through all of these different tales, this is kind of the general story that people go with. So here it is. So she was 15 years old at the time. And when you are a young girl, you are considered to be safe in the eyes of the German, what they called Green Police. So she sought out a flyer who was just north of Velp in Veluwe. I don't know. I'm very sorry. Uh, But it was located in the forest just outside of her town, and the Germans forbade villagers to enter. For Audrey to venture to the pilot meant death if she was caught. The message she delivered was about funneling pilots south through Belgium, where they would be handed off to the underground network. And her dangerous journey helped save those pilots' lives. So on her way home from that, she noticed the Dutch Nazi police approaching her, and she was like, I got to think on my feet. They're going to ask me what I'm doing over here. So she starts picking wildflowers nearby. And when the Nazis finally got close enough to her and approached her, she silently presented them with the flowers. The, sh- the soldiers checked her pass and she went home. It's crazy. It
1: is crazy. So, I. I also think that it helps that she has this very innocent quality oh, yes. and it's the same kind of quality that made her so popular in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this very like wide eyed young girl kind of innocence, even as she got older.
2: Yeah. Oh, she always <laughs> photos had of her as a child. She would have been a, a child model in today's day and age. Like she is gorgeous. She's one of the most beautiful women I've ever exactly. seen. Like she's Through every insanely phase of her life. beautiful. It's unbelievable. So this is, this is how Audrey described these events. British man in forest, message delivered, flowers given to soldier. Oh, that's what we got. It. But there have been tales woven. I don't know the accuracy of what I just said, but that is the generally accepted idea of what happened. Other ways that Audrey and her mother assisted the resistance included volunteering at a hospital which cared for resistance members in VELP and her family briefly hid a paratrooper in their home during the Battle of Arnhem. So they were badass ladies, 100%. I believe she had brothers that were like, old. she had like half brothers I know that were like deported and in hiding. It really was just she and her mom during all of this, which is pretty cool. Audrey also witnessed the transportation of Dutch Jews to concentration camps. She later said, More than once, I was at the station seeing trainloads of Jews being transported, seeing all these faces over the top of the wagon. I remember, very sharply, one little boy standing with his parents on the platform, very pale, very blonde, wearing a coat that was much too big for him, and he stepped onto the train. I was a child observing a child. After the Allied landing on D-Day, living conditions grew even worse. And during the Dutch famine in the winter of 1944, the Germans blocked supply routes of the Dutch people's already limited food and fuel supplies. Like so many others, Audrey's family resorted to making flour out of tulip bulbs to bake cakes and biscuits. Did you know this was possible, Keegan? Because this is gardening uh, and baking, I did not. which are your things. I, I d-
1: you would think I would know, but no, I, I did not know that that was... I mean... Uh, uh, Yeah, I want to kind of, like, look into that because I'm like, is there a gluten content? I know. I don't
2: understand either. And it doesn't sound like it would necessarily be the most delicious thing in the world, but I'm curious as to how well it works. You know?
1: Yes, same. Um,
2: So from all of this, Audrey developed acute anemia, respiratory problems, and edema as a result of malnutrition. When does... I wonder if that contributed because everyone kind of idealizes this
1: very slight, almost like waifish right. pixie-ish figure that she had. Uh, I wonder if that contributed to that in any way. I mean, it's in- I wonder if her growth
2: was affected. It's, it's, at it's all. interesting. I'm. I actually just finished a book about the Turpin family, the thirteen children who were uh, kept Ugh, and tortured yeah. by their parents in Paris, California, and um, they all suffered from a lot of different ailments because of malnutrition. And it's something that I learned about through my own uh, journey with my eating disorder and how your body recovers from that. And it is very interesting. If, if you've gone a very long period of time where you have not been fed properly, you know, your muscle definition, your bones, there's so many things that start to break down and it can cause a lot of very serious problems. Um So it very well could have contributed to that very permanent waif life figure. But I think also from photos that I've seen of, you know, her early life, she didn't seem like she was this super skinny. But then again, she was young. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I mean and she, yeah, there was
1: there's was probably an element of her being thin to begin with. Right. Um but then especially sh- during kind of like your development, like she's in her yeah. teens. She, this is when you're having growth spurts. This is whenever, you know, that stuff is supposed to be happening for you. So if you're not getting the right amount of nutrition, right. um I wonder if there is any like permanent, I don't want to say damage, but like lasting imp-
2: there, in a lasting impact. There is. There really is. I'm, actually so after the war Ended. I'm kind of. I'm skipping ahead like two things in my notes, so I'll go back. But after the war ended, she moved in with her mother and her siblings in Amsterdam, where she was training uh, for. She was training in ballet, and she was told that despite her talent, her height and weak constitution, which were the after effects of her wartime malnutrition, would mean that she would never be a prima ballerina. So it did kind of stunt that career prospect for her. She really wanted to be a professional ballerina, and because of her malnutrition and her height, she wasn't able to accomplish that goal. Was she too short? I don't know. It just said in her hmm. height. Um so going back to a little bit of when she's talking about her time during the war, uh, she's quoted years later as saying, every loyal Dutch schoolgirl and boy did their little bit to help. Many were much more courageous than I was. And I think that's just another example of how humble she was by all of this.
1: Well, and I feel like that's a common theme that we see a lot of. Like, Because remember when we did the um, heroines of the Holocaust mm-hmm. and th- they had similar things. Like the person that I covered had a, a very similar mindset where she did these incredible things, but she was just like, I could have done mm-hmm. more and other people did do more. right? You know, like they don't, they don't see themselves as these heroic figures. No,
2: because I think that none of these women are ever satisfied until everything they want to accomplish is done. You know what I mean? So, and I think for her being so young and, and knowing of all these war heroes as well, being like, well, I was just a school girl doing what I could, but I think it's very admirable. Um, so this, this, was the time that they moved to Amsterdam like I mentioned. Um, Her mother was very scared uh, still of living in Velp. She wanted to get her daughter as far away from the German border as possible and apparently uh, in Amsterdam they had better access to the black market. So everybody head on over to Amsterdam. Um, So after her dream of being a ballerina was kind of shattered she appeared in her first educational travel film where she played a stewardess. So this was actually her first role ever. Um, She That's so freaking cute. And this is when she's so adorable. This is when she dropped Rustin from her name and began going as Audrey Hepburn. So Audrey then became involved in theater and while filming a small role in the movie Monte Carlo, she caught the attention of French novelist Colette, who thought Audrey would be perfect for the title role in the Broadway adaptation of her book, Gigi. Audrey was a hit and received a theater world award for the role. So this was like her first big role. Like she saw her on like, what was it? Like this little film and she was like, I want you for this, for my Broadway play, Well, when you're that pretty, I really feel like when you're that pretty, like you can't help but be like notice. I mean, she has a quality as well, but the thing is, is that there were a lot of people actually working against her. This was a a woman. This novelist really did fight for her. A lot of the studio heads and things like that didn't want to or not studio heads because it was theater. But a lot of the people in that community didn't want to take the risk by putting someone you know, as a headliner that is relatively unknown. Um, So this success led to her film roles and her first starring role in a film was Roman Holiday, like you mentioned, with Gregory Peck. And Gregory Peck really is kind of like this beautiful ally through her life. Uh, It seems like they have such an amazing connection. And it really started when Gregory Peck fought for her to get top billing next to him in the title. He said, you've got to change that because she'll be a big star and I'll look like a big jerk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he was was right. right. And also it just, it just made sense. I mean, looking back now, it's like, of course, Gregory Peck was the star at the time and she was not a star, but, looking back now it's like she was the star of that movie she was
2: she is the star of that movie. (laughs) exactly well and he was really right because she went on to win an oscar and a golden globe for this role and she signed a seven picture contract with paramount so her career includes films such as sabrina war and peace funny face and of course breakfast at tiffany's which apparently truman capote really wanted marilyn monroe for the role um but the studios did not agree with that casting. They wanted somebody more innocent. So they went with Audrey Hepburn. My personal favorites, like I said in the beginning, are My Fair Lady and Funny Face. My Fair Lady was one of my favorites. And I just remember that dancing scene from Funny Face so clearly. It's so good. <laughs> In 1952, Audrey got engaged to James Hansen, who she had known since she was young living in London, but their wedding unfortunately never came because their careers would keep them apart most of the time. She issued a public statement saying, when I get married, I want to really be married. She then met actor Mel Ferrer at a party at Gregory Peck's house, and it was suggested that they star in the play Odin together. While in rehearsal, they began a relationship, and eight months later, they were married in Switzerland while preparing to star together in the movie War and Peace. Audrey experienced multiple miscarriages when working while pregnant, and she experienced many miscarriages throughout her life, and I believe that the malnutrition was also probably a factor in that. Um, there are people, you know, if you, if you are depriving yourself of nutrients for long enough, you know, you lose your period, and a lot of these other things happen, and it can, it can make having children very difficult. So because she was thinking, I'm working so hard, but I really want to have children, she decided to take a year off to prevent another miscarriage. And uh, she and Mel Farrer had their first son, Sean Hepburn Farrer, who was born in 1960, and she would have two more miscarriages in later years. The couple divorced in 1968 and there were rumors of Ferrer being like Audrey's Bengali like he was just kind of this like negative force around her manipulating her and things like that. She met her second husband, Italian psychiatrist Andrea Dotti. Dotti, Dotti. I'm going to call him Dotti. On a cruise through the Mediterranean with friends in 1968. So the same year she got divorced, she met Dotti. They married in January 19
1: 9- you know what? She's older. She's like, let's
2: TikTok. Let's yeah, get this going. I don't going. care. So they married in 1969 and they had a son named Luca, which I love that name. That's so cute. She wanted a third child, but after yet another miscarriage, she decided to stop trying. Her relationship with Dottie was not a happy one. Uh, he was often unfaithful and had a relationship allegedly with actor Ben Gazzara. Don't know who it is. Don't know anything about that. Me neither. Um, It's so sad for her. Like I I And they were married for thirteen years it's sad that she she couldn't find happiness. Just seems really sad. Let's keep Let's keep uh, listening, shall we? Because from 1980 until her death, she was romantically linked to Dutch actor Robert Wolders. She recalls her nine years with Wolder as the happiest years of her life, and she considers them married, though it was never official. So she eventually, you know, she got two kids. She really wanted three. She had two boys. And she really, like she said, when I get married, I really want to be married. She really, I think, wanted to find that love in her life. And I'm so glad that, you know, though it took a long time, she found someone like Robert Wolders because really he was such a a wonderful companion for her for the rest of her life and really was supportive of her humanitarian efforts so her first work in uh, the humanitarian world started in the 1950s when Audrey narrated two programs for UNICEF which was retelling children's stories of war then all the way In the future, in 1989, she was appointed a goodwill ambassador of UNICEF. So I think that's really cool. It was like almost 40 years later when she did just this narration for these children's books that they were making her an ambassador. And I believe she was like either the first or one of the first kind of like celebrity ambassadors or major ambassadors of UNICEF. Um, She stated she was grateful for receiving international aid during the German occupation as a child and wanted to show her gratitude to the organization. So UNICEF helped her as a child, and she really wanted to give back. Her first field mission was to Ethiopia in 1988. She visited an orphanage that housed 500 starving children, and UNICEF sent food. Of the trip, she said, I have a broken heart. I feel desperate. I can't stand the idea that 2 million people are in imminent danger of starving to death, many of them children, and not because there isn't tons of food sitting in the northern part of Shoah. It can't be distributed. Last spring, Red Cross and UNICEF workers were ordered out of the northern provinces because of two simultaneous civil wars. I went into rebel country and saw mothers and their children who have w- walked for 10 days, even three weeks, looking for food, settling onto the desert floor into makeshift camps, where they may die horrible that image is too much for me the third world is a term i don't like very much because we're all one world i want people to know that the largest part of humanity is suffering she seems like a
1: genuinely incredibly empathetic and compassionate human yeah being. i actually
2: have a lot of quotes from her during this time and they're all Pretty amazing. Uh, she also traveled to Turkey, which she said was the loveliest example of, UNICEF, of UNICEF's capabilities. She said the army gave us their trucks, the fishmongers gave their wagons for the vaccines, and on the da- and when the date was set, it took ten days to vaccinate the whole country. Not bad. We could use that now. she also traveled to south america she told the u.s congress i saw tiny mountain communities slums and shanty towns receive water systems for the first time by some miracle and the miracle is unicef i watched boys build their own schoolhouse with bricks and cement provided by unicef She met with leaders in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. She visited Sudan with Wolders on a mission called Operation Lifeline. The mission was to ferry food to southern Sudan to support the civilians affected by the Civil War. She said, these are not natural disasters, but man-made tragedies for which there is only one man-made solution, peace. A UN photographer said, often kids would have flies all over them, but she would just go hug them. I had never seen that. Other people had a certain amount of hesitation, but she would just grab them. Children would just come up to her and hold her hand, touch her. She was like the Pied Piper. She went to Vietnam to support clean water programs, and shortly before her death, she went to Somalia. She called it apocalyptic and said, I've walked into a nightmare. I have seen famine in Ethiopia and Bangladesh, but I have seen nothing like this, so much worse than I could possibly have imagined. I wasn't prepared for this. Audrey was always horrified by the injustices and cruelty of the world, no matter how much destruction she had seen throughout her life. At the heart of it all, she loved children and wanted to help them. She says, taking care of children has nothing to do with politics. I think perhaps with time, instead of there being a politicization of human aid, there will be a humanization of politics. We need her now. (laughs) She's like, instead of it being like we need to police human aid, we need more humanization in our politics. And I think that's very true to this day. Well, I think there are
1: still people advocating for that. You know, unfortunately, it's that a lot of people who are in charge or people who have priorities that are completely mixed up Mm -hmm. and all and, you know, counter to that. Yeah, they get in the way. They do.
2: Exactly. So while all this is going on, during the 1960s, Audrey actually got in contact with her father in Dublin through the Red Cross, and he remained emotionally detached, but Audrey supported him financially until his death. She's a genuinely good person. She's a better daughter than I am. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Um, When Audrey returned from Somalia and Switzerland, she started experiencing abdominal pain. She had a rare form of... She had a rare form of abdominal cancer. The cancer had been growing for several years. She received surgery and chemotherapy, but unfortunately, there was no way that she was going to recover. So she and her family returned to Switzerland to celebrate her last Christmas, and she passed away on January 20th, 1993. The legacy that she leaves behind is that the American Film Institute named her third among the greatest female stars of all time. She has EGOT status. She has won an Emmy, an Oscar, a Grammy, and a Tony Award. Her son, Sean, founded the Audrey Hepburn Children's Fund. Uh, the U.S. Fund for UNICEF also founded the Audrey Hepburn Society and is chaired by her other son, Luca, and it has raised almost $100 million to date. So I love that she has instilled this idea into her kids of social justice and humanitarian work and her legacy has lived on through UNICEF and all of these other prominent celebrities that want to make a difference and a change in the world. And it, you know, from my understanding, kind of started with this young, innocent-looking, doe-eyed girl in the Netherlands that just wanted everybody to be, to feel better and be happy you know
1: well she seems like a genuinely kind person you know what I mean and like when you're when you're genuinely kind and compassionate and empathetic I think you
2: can't help but do good it's that's just the way that you are wired well I'm gonna stop there because We've been at this for a while. I don't know how long the episode is actually going to end up being, but we've been recording for like over an hour and a half. So um, we're going to get off. But thank you guys so much for listening. We've gotten even more suggestions from you guys for episodes. I really appreciate it. I'm adding all of them to our sheets on our page there, Keegan, for our episode Uh, requests. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. Keep them coming. Email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. You can also follow us there. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go ahead and rate and review us on that business page and chat with the fellow listeners on the group page. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You guys have been so awesome about doing that lately. Keep it going. We are so psyched about it. Thank you. You will be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday. Uh, If you don't already, listen to us on Radio Public. It's a free way for you to listen, and it helps us out just a little bit. And I just want to wrap up this entire thing by saying, please don't inject yourself with any sort of household disinfectants. I swear (laughs) to God. All right. With all of that being said, we encourage you to To raise on. on.